1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Tethered Nation, you've often heard me talk about Tethered and their saddle setups and how much I love them and that the, I've given them credit for helping me expedite my learning curve or becoming a more mobile and more aggressive hunter, especially whenever it comes to doing out-of-state hunts. Well, their previous saddle setup, was, there's nothing wrong with it. I've used it for two years, but they've decided to up their game if you've not heard and have released the Phantom saddle. And the thing that they've updated this is, is sizing. Oftentimes, people are asking what size they need to buy based on their waist size. Well, They've kind of eliminated that and created a one-size-fits-most uh, saddle size, which is a tw- for, goes from a 28-inch waist to a 40-inch uh, waist. They developed comfort channels. One of the biggest things people would talk about is just like overall comfort when they get into the saddle. The saddle is comfortable to begin with, but how could they increase that even more? So what they did is they created comfort channels on the uh, loop in which the bridge kind of connects into and your bridge position will have a lot to do with uh, how comfortable your sit might be because it's going to determine where the pressure of your saddle is being placed on your body. So if you need a little bit more back pressure, you move it to the higher comfort channel. If you need a little bit more pressure or support underneath your rear end, you move it to a lower comfort channel. The other thing, one of the biggest things I think you know, overall is you know that has to do with comfort is how high you're setting your tether. And a lot of times when you're getting into a tree, depending on the size of the tree, where the branches are, things of that nature, you can't always get your tether height exactly where you want it to be. For me, I like to set mine right about neck height. But if I have a branch that's in the way and I'm hunting public ground and I can't cut it, I might need to set it higher or lower. And that's going to impact the length of my bridge uh, away from me, essentially, or the, or the distance from me to my tether. And the only way I can adjust that is by having an adjustable bridge. And Tether has created the Utila Bridge, which allows you to make that adjustment on the fly, super easy to kind of adjust that length to the optimum position for you to have the most comfort. The other thing that I'm really stoked about that is probably a little bit underlooked is the lineman loops. Now, their lineman loops on the Mantis are fine, but they're not as rigid as the ones on the Phantom Saddle are. And the reason why they're a little bit more rigid and bigger on the Phantom Saddle is that it's a lot easier to find them whenever you're trying to you know, ascend or descend in the dark. So for all these reasons, if you've not checked out Tethered, I would go to tetherednation.com, check out their saddle gear, and specifically take a look at the Phantom Saddle. The first thing I do in the morning before a hunt, before a scout, or just before getting ready for work is have my morning coffee, and I'm sure most of you out there listening are the same. Make sure you're filling your mug with Skull Brew Coffee, as it is the only coffee company that is both 2% for conservation certified and donates 10% of its profits to conservation organizations to help secure the future of our wild places. So head to SkullBrewCoffee.com and choose between three killer roasts of coffee and know that you are supporting conservation with every sip.
Welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 176. Today I'm joined by Todd Hovel of Mystery River Trackers. We're covering big woods tracking and old school woodsmanship. So stay tuned. All right, all right, all right. Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you're doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. We are grinding through another week of quarantine or something of that nature. It feels like things are not, I don't want to say loosening up. Um, I don't think any of us think that things have loosened up at all. Um, but it seems like certain things are opening up in certain places in, in, in Pennsylvania, uh, in Pennsylvania at least, which maybe hopefully, hopefully that's a good sign that, uh, We'll get to uh, maybe enjoy some of the things we uh, we've we've enjoyed in the past. Still social distancing. Uh, I did see my buddy Wilson uh, a couple. Uh, I guess it was last week after after I put out last week's podcast. Um, he stopped over. I forget he was picking something up, and I don't remember exactly. I don't remember exactly what it was. Maybe it was his aerosol. I can't remember exactly why we why we ended up seeing each other. But we were uh, chatting in the yard for a little bit. And then we ended up FaceTiming, uh, which I don't do a lot of FaceTiming with my buddies. It's kind of weird. I don't like it. Um, I don't mind using Zoom or whatever for work, you know, and, and, and doing uh, video conference calls and stuff like that. But when I'm talking to my friends, it's weird to do FaceTime or video chat or, or whatever because it just – I never talk to them that way. It's like I'm usually texting, um, you know, rarely a phone conversation, once in a while a phone conversation, uh, but mostly text. And so we actually ended up video chatting, but it was kind of cool because we were talking about turkey hunt and we were getting ready for the season opener. And uh, around here, man, um, you know, uh, Wilson's my go-to kind of turkey guru around here because I've said this a hundred times on the podcast, but I am admittedly one of the worst turkey hunters on the planet. I don't have a lot of patience for it. I just more or less enjoy getting out and uh, and being in the timber. Uh, carrying a gun or a bow around and maybe the opportunity presents itself to shoot a turkey in the face. Maybe it doesn't. Um, but I usually end up doing a little bit of deer scouting while I'm out, while I'm out and about. So that's kind of how I, uh, how I approach turkey hunting, but Wilson's all ate up with it. Like Wilson's into it, you know, gets out roosts birds in multiple places in the off season. So he knows where they're at. And so we were FaceTiming before the opener this past weekend. And, uh, we were actually talking, the conversation started cause he sent me a text I think he sent me a text. I either texted him or he sent me some, whatever the case was. We ended up talking about deer hunting as we always do and about some scouting that we had done. And, and usually in the off season, you know, he and I will get together and go scout at least once, maybe twice during the off season and check out some spots together. Um, and then this year we just didn't get a chance to do that. Um, obvious reasons, things happened where we weren't able to kind of, you know, hang out with one another. So, we were texting back and forth about it. And he sent me a picture of a rub and I was like, Oh, you mean this one? And then we had a picture of the same rub. And then I sent him one of a scrape and he had a picture of the same scrape. So we both were literally scouting the same general area. Cause we both were like, Hey, I've got this hot spot um, that would be, you know, banging, but it's going to be water access only type of thing. And I was like, Oh yeah, me too. You know? <clears throat> and uh, he was talking more or less for, for, for turkeys. Um, Cause he had roosted some birds there and I was talking more or less for, for deer, um, and he, we may end up hunting it together, you know, some, some combination of that whenever, whenever deer season hits. And so from there <clears throat> we started showing each other our maps. So I had my map on my phone or on my computer and I was sh- flipping my phone around showing him and we started talking through like where he was going to hunt on the opening day of turkey season. 
And so he was telling me about this little spot that he had roosted some birds that he wasn't going to get to and said, hey, he's like, you know, if you don't have any plans to be anywhere specifically, which I didn't at that point, I was pretty much, you know, going to figure it out last minute and just go somewhere and, you know, see what happened. Um, Because my plan really was to go back home to the family property and hunt with uh, my father-in-law and and Tate, who, you know, you guys kind of know, you've heard me mention him, I did a podcast with him, but I was going to go back and hunt with those guys. Um, But, you know, it's just one of those things where, you know, we could stay socially distanced and stuff like that, but those gentlemen are, on, uh, you know, they're they're older than me. They're in that risk category, um, you know, and I, of course, live in PA and, and live in the hot zone of everything that's going on here in Pennsylvania for the most part. So um, I didn't want to run the risk of going back there and me unknowingly, you know, maybe having something or whatever, and then one of them gets sick, I'd feel terrible. So I just decided not to, not to go back and I would, you know, stick it solo around here. And so just kind of lucky that Wilson and I were chatting. He's like, yeah, I got a spot. You should check it out. You know, he's like, I know there's a bird in there. He had a camera in there, had a, had a, had a good Tom strutting on camera. And so I was like, sure. And so he, you know, he told me where the spot was. I'd never been there. Um, it's a little piece, you know, so I, I figured, yeah, it'd be easy enough to find my way in. And, uh, so that was the plan, you know, went there Saturday, um, got in really quiet. It's a really good setup. And everything was really good. I got in nice and early. Um, you know, I wanted to be in early to try to like, because this piece was small, the kind of thinking was like, if you get there early and you have to park along the road, that if, if you're the first one there, you're probably going to deter other people from coming in just because it's such a small piece that one person in there is, 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 is enough. You have two people on this piece and it's, it's over hunted. Um, it's a small chunk of this, of this public that kind of sits unconnected to some other public that people may or may not know that it's actually public land. So put it that way. Um, and so I'm sitting there and, uh, you know, geez, I don't even know what time I got in there. I think I got there. I parked my truck at four and I was already at the tree set up at, you know, four, four thirty. And when I say at the tree, like where I was planning to sit, you know, for, for the morning at least. Um, and, uh, the cool thing was though, man, like not to, not to divert, but you know, I found an additional use for, for my, for my saddle gear. Cause the, uh, sorry about the noise there. I'm trying to got this big beard. It's keep hit, hit my microphone. Um, the, uh, I was thinking about it cause I'd seen, I think Greg Godfrey do this when he was duck hunting. I think it was Greg and he actually used his, uh, saddle platform, the predator platform to, to sit on while he was duck hunting at the, on, on, in this swamp. Um, and so I thought I was like, Hey, you know, I was like, I got my pack and I was, I was going to use my ghillie jacket anyway. And it's rolled up underneath the back of my, my predator pack. And so I was like, well, instead of like trying to carry that in and swapping my stuff and my pack and like whatever, everything's already in that pack. I was like, I might as well just carry that in. And if I have the predator platform, I might as well just, you know, go ahead and, you know, see if I can use it, you know? And so I ended up taking one of those little thermostat pads that I, that I've cut in half that I actually use for my knees whenever I'm saddle hunting. I took that and shoved that in the pack as well and got to my got to my spot, put the predator around the around the tree, put my little thermos seat on it, man, and had a perfect little killer, you know, turkey seat for the uh for the morning and weighed, you know, whatever it is, three pounds and you know, fits in that small pack and was 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 good to go. So I was sitting there and I hear I hear like something behind me and it could have been anything. I was like, you know, maybe it's a deer, maybe, you know, it's a possum, like whatever. And uh, I kind of kept hearing it, and I turned around, like, at the top. I was sitting down off the edge of this little – I won't even go as far as to call it a ridge because it's, really it's not really a ridge. It's just this little roll or elevation change in this, uh, in, this, in this particular area. And 
you know, I just happened to turn around and look when I heard the noise and I could see a guy, he was skylit walking behind me, maybe 20 yards. Um, you know, and so of course, you know, he didn't come from the side where I was parked. He was actually coming from the private that it's connected to. Um, and that was how he was, he was getting in. So I'm assuming he probably lives in one of those adjacent, um, adjacent properties. And, uh, Right, you know, as it started getting light, maybe five thirty ish or whatever, birds started gobbling, and of course he was beelining like right toward them, and then they gobbled for maybe twenty minutes or so, maybe thirty minutes, and uh, you know I'm assuming probably about the time dude got over there is about the time they went quiet, um, and so that was kind of it for that it for that hunt, um, and so I ended up pulling my stuff, ended up kind of walking out of there and went to another piece. Um, it was another small little out of the way piece I had I had found on the map. Uh, no gobbles at all over there. Did a little deer scouting. Thought it might be good. It was on the edge of this uh, piece of water that I thought could have been some prime, you know, betting for a buck. There was this little island that kind of juts out into the water. I thought it might be a good little spot. So it was kind of a turkey hunt, kind of a deer scout at the same time, um, you know, because I'm not the I'm not the most you know patient or persistent uh, turkey hunter. So that was kind of what the what the deal was for that. And that was really my, uh, that was really my Saturday, man. Like, you know, it wasn't a, it, it was, uh, I had, I had plenty of work to do when I got home, I guess we'll put it that way. So, you know, I think I wrapped everything up probably around like 10 o'clock or so. And I, here in PA, you can hunt till like noon on the opening day. Um, and so the, you know, I didn't, I didn't miss out too much and it seemed like everything you're where, at least where I was at and my buddies that I talked to said things kind of got quiet. So I dipped out of the woods, came back, took care of some of my domestic duties, which was, uh, which was good and, and, and needed, but uh, the other two pieces of info or that happened this week, you know, I'm mean, getting primed for hunting season, you know, or for deer season rather is, well, actually three things. One, Iowa, Iowa preference point purchase. So I'll, I'll folks out there listening, if you want to buy our Iowa prefer, preference points, it's open now. You can do that. Uh, so already making plans for hopefully in, you know, four more years, I'll be back in, uh, back in Iowa. Uh, but did get the kayak ordered. So that is, that is, that is happening. Uh, that should be here in like the next two weeks. So I'm really looking forward to that. And then I'll, I'll probably go out and well, I'll definitely go out and do some trail camera placement once I get that and get, and get those set up in some of those water access areas. Um, and I'll probably do a little YouTube video about, about that and, and, and some of that stuff for, you know, access for trail cameras and stuff like that using water. Um, and then the other piece was, um, I know I'd mentioned in the last podcast that I may possibly be getting a trailer, a, a cargo trailer, and was considering converting it uh, for like a mobile DIY hunting rig. And that is confirmed. I just need to go pick it up at this point. Um, it's back home in my hometown, so I just got to find some time to get back there. Um, but it's cool. It's uh, it's not huge. Yeah, it's it's a I, I got a killer deal on it. So. I, um, which is why I picked is which is why I picked it up because it was super super cheap, but it's a six by ten and I, I typically wanted something just a little bit bigger than that, um, but for my first setup I, I think it'll work work perfect. It's never going to be me more than me and maybe one other guy that's that's going to use it um, at a time. So got that trailer and now I'm really kind of going through the process of figuring out well what all I'm going to put in it. You know I'm not going to get crazy. It's not going to be super fancy. Um, you know all I really need is a little bit of power. You know, I'm kind of going back and forth on whether I, you know, use a quiet generator or if I get some type of solar set up um, to use. Solar issues if I'm using it during hunting season in November, you know, a lot of times there's not a lot of sun. So how much power am I actually going to get? Um, so, so some things like that to consider. Got to put some, you know, type of bunk beds in there and stuff like that. And 
you know, make sure it's rigged up for at least to have like the minimum, you know, uh, amenities, you know, a little bit of heat, uh, electricity to be able to charge some, you know, phones and computers and, and camera batteries and, and stuff like that. So it's going to be pretty, pretty DIY, but I'm looking forward to it because this is going to really, you know, there's some places here in Pennsylvania that I've wanted to hunt, um, that I've just not, you know, explored out because it's a little bit of a drive from the house. And by the time I'd be, have to get up and get out there and, you know, I don't know enough about the, that property yet at this particular point to, to make it worth my while to make that, to make that effort. Um, but if I had a situation where I could manage to camp close by and not have to make the hour plus drive, um, to get there in the morning before, you know, before a hunt, you know, I would, I would start to expand my territory a little bit. Now I've truck camped and stuff like that in the past, but you know, looking for something that's just a little bit more, especially on some of those cold evenings, it's a little bit more conducive for, uh, for that. So that's kind of what this system is going to be for, you know, my, my goal is to get it rigged up at least with the essentials, uh, by fall. That way I can use it for, um, the Missouri hunt. Cause I don't know if I mentioned that here, but that is as of right now, uh, confirmed, uh, that I'll be doing some Missouri public land. So I'm stoked on that. And then of course my Ohio hunt. So the plan is to get it at least functional and operational for those two, uh, for those two hunts before the beginning of, uh, of November hits. So that's really my whitetail update, man. Got a, you know, my normal, uh, failed Turkey hunt, which is pretty par for the course. Uh, kayak is on its way and, um, a little DIY rut wagon, as I like to call it, that I'll be using, uh, this fall that I'll be converting into some type of livable, livable accommodation. So with that, we're going to go ahead and get jumped into the, uh, to today's podcast. Got a cool show for you today. Uh, this guy, I just kind of happened to to stumble across. Actually, I'll give my buddy Greg Litzinger the the love for kind of connecting me with this guy. Um, you know, one of the things I think I've talked about in the past is just you know evolving as a, as a deer hunter and trying to get better at all facets. And I know I've mentioned in the past, you know, wanting to be multiple. You know, and I really kind of talk about that in my um, desire to be able to hunt from the ground better. Um, you know, I, I think anytime, whatever it is that you do, the, you know, the more tools you can have in your, in your, in your toolbox, the better off you are and the more capable you, you are to take advantage of whatever situations that come up. And so with that, Greg actually texted me one morning before work and said, Hey, I found this guy. He's got some YouTube videos. Um, he's like, he really knows his stuff. He's like, you know, maybe you should talk to him. And so I ended up looking at his YouTube videos. He has a Facebook page called, uh, uh, Misty River Trackers, I think is what it's called. And his name's Todd Hovel. Um, and what I really liked about him is, is uh, he, the, he is very much old school woodsmanship where he's doing a lot of tracking and he's hunting a lot of big woods setups. You know, I've hunted some big woods, um, you know, whether it was, you know, Ohio or, you know, you could say Iowa um, because it wasn't your classic um you know, farmland, Iowa type of thing. But what I will say about that big woods setting that I was hunting out there was that there was more structure than you would find, um, in a lot of big woods places, just with like the CRP fields and how things kind of break up a little bit that you don't get in like big woods settings. If you're in say, you know, Minnesota or, or, you know, uh, upper Michigan or whatever the case is. Um, but you know, where Todd is kind of, you know, <clears throat> I guess earning his stripes or where he spent his time is Wisconsin, Minnesota, and in, in those kind of big wood settings. And so he relies a lot on tracking and tracking and reading sign and stuff like that. You know, reading sign is something I think as deer hunters were somewhat, um, I'll just say familiar with, because I don't want to say knowledgeable about, cause we've all kind of have different knowledge levels with that. 
Um, but we're at least familiar with those things and, and what we're looking for. Um, you know, Todd kind of takes it a step further cause he's really kind of, you know, as, as you know, the hunters that we've talked to on here in the past that are just, you know, killers and really good at what they do. And he's interpreting it just a level deeper and starting to see things through the deer's eyes. And that's kind of how he's reading the sign. And the other thing that he does really well is tracking it. And he hunts predominantly, I'll say, I don't know that I even asked him this during the show, but just from talking to him, I would say like 98% of his hunting is done by cutting a track and following a deer and tracking a deer. Um, which to me is really, really impressive because the, the nuance and your ability to, um, discern good sign from bad sign or sign that's worth your time pursuing is just, I mean, the discerning eye that you have to have to be able to do that kind of stuff and to do it consistently, um, is, is, is pretty respectable. Um, and he's killing good deer, um, getting on good deer and in a big woods setting, um, you know, a place without a lot of structure where they can kind of go anywhere. And he's actually getting to the point to where he's able to pattern these deer, like a specific deer. If it's living, he's able to kind of pattern it and find it from one year to the next based on, you know, how he's tracked it in the past and like what type of cover it's liked or what type of edge it's like to follow. And, um, you know, we've talked in the past on this show about yearly trail camera data and yearly patterns. He's finding the same thing with tracking deer. He's finding yearly patterns and tracking deer, which to me just kind of blows my mind, man. You can get that granular with, with tracking because it's just a, a skill that I don't have. Um, uh, but which is why I wanted to bring him on here because it was something that I know that I need to get better at, um, is being able to read tracks and interpret them and understand what they're telling me. Um, as well as just sign in general. And he's, and he's really, uh, and he's really adept at, at, at those things. So, so with that, we'll get jumped into the show as always want to thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today I have a guest on. So, you know, all of you guys out there that have been following along with me kind of know that one of the things I've been wanting to do this past year is, you know, I've talked about being multiple in my setups and being able to hunt from the ground and stuff like that. And it's one of those things where I was talking with, you know, my buddy Greg Litzinger, and, and he's always kind of scouring for new information out in the, the interweb world. And he ran across this fella um, and actually sent me a, a text message. He's like, hey, I ran across this uh, some YouTube information. He's like, I think you should check it out. He's like, the guy knows what he's talking about. And it was really interesting because one of the things that I've wanted to get better at, you know, as a hunter has been kind of more of that old school kind of woodsmanship um, is one thing that I think that a lot of folks lack. And look, I, I'm going to lump myself into that group because as passionate as I am about hunting and hunting whitetails, you know, I can always get better with my woodsmanship. So I hopped on this guy's YouTube channel, started checking him out. And the first thing I kind of came on to was him talking about tracking. And that is one area where I lack uh, considerably. So with that, I have on Mr. Todd Hovel from Misty River Trackers. What's going on, Todd? How are you? Good, good. Good. Well, uh, so the one thing, you know, I guess before, let me back up for a second. Before we dive into, you know, talking about tactics or anything like that. If you wouldn't mind, just give folks out there a little bit of background about yourself, you know, where you're from, what you do for a living and how you started hunting. Okay. Well, I, I grew up in a little town in, in uh, central Wisconsin, Rudolph, Wisconsin. Um, we had more cows than people in the <laughs> farming community. Um, I was always, always interested in the outdoors. Even, I mean, as a very young child, I was uh, in the outdoors all the time. And uh, coming from a farming background, I guess that's kind of hand in hand with that as well. Um, I'd look forward to 
watching my dad come home from hunting, I, I would look out the picture window and wait for him to come more excited than waiting for Santa to come. <laughs> I wanted to see what he saw that day. I wanted to, I, I wanted to hear all his hunting stories. Every time he came home from hunting, I, I couldn't wait to get old enough to actually go hunt. And, um, so it was, it's been in my blood ever since I was a child, I guess. And, um, and I, I grew up in the farm community hunting, and uh, at one point I kind of wanted a different challenge, so I, I headed north into the, the big woods. Uh, no fences, no no trespassing signs. Um, very daunting. Uh, anybody that's tried the big woods will will attest to that. It's mm-hmm. it's uh, it'll it'll set you on your heels. Yeah. It's like everywhere you look, there's woods, and how do I hunt this? You know, how do I pick this apart? And right. And um, I I did. All right. Um, I tried to use a lot of the farm country tactics up in the big woods, and and they, it produced some. Uh, but I never really, really understood the deer. I never understood the deer I was hunting. I never really understood what they were doing, and I kind of got a little bored with it all. And and it's like I need something different. So I ran across these guys, uh, Benoit's from out east, and it's like oh these guys track deer, they follow the tracks and they shoot these deer. It's like, really? Wow. You know, so I started absorbing all their information. It's like, these guys were older and they looked, they looked like they were athletes by any means. And, <laughs> and I thought, well, I can do that. You know, even though I'm getting up in age, I can do that too, you know? Right. So I got really involved and I started really diving into that, the tracking, you know, portion of it. And, um, and I honestly, I can tell you that, um, I, I hunt other ways. I archery hunt when I can have time and I rifle hunt uh, from stands and so forth. But my true love, my passion is tracking them now. So it's, it's, it's funny. You, you mentioned those hunting stories with your dad. Cause I can kind of um, re- relate to that. Cause it was the same. I grew up in Pennsylvania, which is a big hunting heritage state. And uh, you know, I remember my dad going out to hunt and just waiting for him to come back. I mean, you know, talk a little bit about those hunting stories for a second. Like how much of that, like just the allure of listening to the older guys, you know, talk about their experiences, how much of that really kind of, you know, I guess piqued your interest or, you know, made your blood boil with, with wanting to be able to get out into the timber. Um, I don't know. You know, my dad, my dad never really hunted a lot. It was like he went with during rifle. He never talked about deer hunting the rest of the year. Um, he, he never archery hunted. I think he archery hunted one time in his life when he was younger. Um, and that was the, the old stick and string way back then. Right. Um, so really, you know, it was kind of unusual because my dad, my dad was more of a fox trapper. That's, that was his big thing. Um, I learned a lot of, uh, about, uh, trapping from my dad, you know, as far as that was, you know, my dad wasn't really that big of a hunter. He went and he'd come home and I, he would tell me what he saw and everything. Um, and I was always excited and I couldn't wait to go. But other than that, you know, once hunting season was done, he put the gun away. He, he wouldn't mention hunting. My grandpa, on the other hand, was more into the hunting. Um, so I probably learned a little bit more, you know, through him, but, but again, you know, um, it wasn't, it wasn't a real big thing. It was, I, I, it, it must've been born in me because I just craved it and I'm not sure where it came from. Right. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand that. I mean, it's one of those things I think, I don't know. I, I think as like a young, as a young kid or a young boy or whatever, you know, growing up, you know, 
it, I think we have this natural curiosity for it. Um, I almost think you're right to a degree where it's like kind of born into us, you know, where I, th- I think that there's this, I'm going to say caveman, <laughs> you know, hunter gatherer or hunter that's kind of in everybody. And I just think it, all you need is just like a few little experiences at, at a young age that really kind of makes that come out. And then to me, it's like, it never leaves you, you know, at, at, at that point, it's like, once it comes out and you recognize what it is, it's like, at that point, I think you're kind of damned that you're, it's going to be part of you <laughs> no matter what you do. For some of us, it's a little, a little worse than others. But, uh, I wanted to ask you, you know, you mentioned hunting the big woods, you know, and I've had an opportunity to hunt a couple big, big woods tracks, probably not the size that you're talking. Cause I've, I've watched some of your videos in some of the areas, you know, the wilderness areas that you're, that you're in and stuff like that. Um, but when you made the transition from kind of like using your farmland tactics to the big woods, like, and, and I'm sure there's a lot of other guys out there, you know, like me, the first time I went to the big woods and I was, you know, for sure using farmland tactics, you know, and I know I was doing it wrong. Like, what do you think the biggest thing it was that you had to change to be more successful hunting the big woods? The, the biggest thing I, I had to change was I had to understand the animal itself. Mm-hmm. And then once I started to learn the, understand the animal, then, then learning how to hunt them is, is the easier part then. Um, uh, and that's why it's so difficult because when you, you can spend 10 years hunting the Northwoods and you have a few encounters with big bucks in those 10 years, but those encounters are a hundred yards and in and it's over. And so you really, in that hundred yards, you didn't learn any more about that animal than you knew before you saw him. Right. And, and that was the big problem. It was like, I absorbed every piece of information that I could find on big woods hunting. And really I wasn't learning anything. And, um, that's kind of why tracking intrigued me from the standpoint of I can, if I follow it, you know, it, it made sense to me. If I follow these animals around, they're going to tell me a lot of stuff. I'm going to get to learn about them. And, um, and I would say besides shooting a trophy deer, which is of course everybody's goal, the bigger thing you're going to take away from this is you're going to learn white tail behavior, trophy deer, white tail behavior in the Northwood setting. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you follow a hundred of them, you're going to know, what they do, how they think, how they act. When I walk into a woods now and I look, I see that deer, I see the woods through the deer's eyes. I don't see it through my eyes anymore. And and I can tell you that being when I first went up there and now I look at those woods a whole lot different. I see the way this deer see, I know how the deer are going to move through the land. And the only way you're going to do that is by tracking and following a lot of tracks. And, um, I always equate it to like, I don't know, the CSI TV shows where they show yeah. the crime scene and, but then they kind of back up and show the crime happening, mm-hmm. you know, then they show the evidence laying around and how it, you know, and how it got to be that way. Well, that's kind of what it's like when you're tracking, you start tracking and you see these hoof marks in the snow and then you see he nibbled on this and he ate that and he went down this hill here instead of going over there. And, and then you kind of start picturing this deer out in front of you in your mind and watching what he's doing. He's kind of there in front of you. Then after a while, after you get put in a lot of hours doing it and you start to see patterns 
And um, one other thing that really made it pop for me as well was when I was done, I, I tracked all my tracks on GPS. And then when I would go home at the end of the day or back to my camper, I would put it up on my laptop and I would look at it again on big screen and I I could overlay aerials and topple and I could watch how that deer walked the land. Hmm. And after a while you start seeing patterns popping out at you again and again and again on how these deer use the land. Um, so you got that first hand of, of what they're doing on the ground. And then you can look at these topples and you start to see patterns develop after you see one, 10, you know, 50, a hundred, a thousand, you start to see patterns developing and that changes your thought process. And then that changes the way you set up on the deer when you're just going out with your rifle and you're going to stand or your bow and you're going to take a stand. Right. I want to ask now you, you know where they're going to go. Right. Right. I, I want to ask you a couple, a couple things. Well, I guess we can kind of encapsulate it in this one question. You know, when I, I I think that's really smart as far as like when, when you're tracking, you know, being able to kind of overlay the GPS with the topo and stuff like that. Cause I mean, people, you know, plenty of hunters out there would kill for that kind of information. Cause you see these studies that they do, whether it's like Penn state university doing their deer studies and in their, in their collaring deer. And they're able to tell you like their rut movements and, you know, time of day that they're moving. And if certain winds or, or if certain, you know, weather patterns are affecting their movement and stuff like that. And I mean, as hunters, like we can basically take that information and say, okay, well, here's a data set from somewhere that I'm not hunting. That's just kind of saying deer behavior in general, right? Which is, which is you know, the 30,000 foot view of what deer are going to do with certain variables in play. What I think is really interesting in what you're doing is you're doing it for the specific area that you're hunting in. And then also on specific deer that you're, that you're hunting. You know, can can you tell me a little bit about what type of patterns from some of that GPS data that maybe like sticks out to you in your memory of like when I saw this pattern emerge, this this was like the big aha moment for me. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Yeah, and, and, and it's one thing and one thing only, and anybody that's listening to this, go down and get it tattooed on your arm. Um, <laughs> It's the biggest thing I learned from this, and it's a key to your success in the big woods. If that buck comes through on this trail, when he comes back through, he's going to come back through on that trail. If he comes through on that trail, if, if he shows up in this area on October 31st, next year he's going to be there on October 31st. They're that they're that patternable. Everybody always says, I hear this again and again and again, all that movement in the big woods is random. There's so much acreage and they just wander around like, um, transients and they, you know, there's no pattern to them. B S <laughs> that's the biggest lie that people are telling you with what they just don't understand they, because they don't, they haven't done what I've done. Those deer are so patternable. It's crazy. 
Um, if, if he comes down a certain trail, he's going to come down again, that same trail. If he comes through there, it's gold. If you track a deer, you, you, that's why I use the GPS because if I ever have to go in bare ground and I know a deer is still alive in that area that I've tracked in the past, I know what trails he's going to use. I know where his bedding is. I can set up on those trails near his bedding. And my chances of shooting that deer are slim in the big woods, but they just went way, way, way up over every other guy out there. Mm-hmm. No, you know, because I know, I know he's going to use that trail. I can narrow down hundreds of thousands of acres to a few trails. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's key, and I think too. I mean, let me ask you this. I mean, I have a couple questions based off of that one. I think we'll take the first one. Um, do you think that you are getting, let me back up by saying this, I think annual patterns are something that people are more and more beginning to believe in. I know a buddy of mine owns a trail camera company. We hunt a big woods piece together. He's hunted it for, um, I want to say going on six, seven years now I've hunted it. Maybe this will be my second year back to that particular piece. Um, and just from, you know, not tracking as you are but using trail camera data like we've watched and seen specific deer come back to certain areas within like a two to three day time frame and i've encountered the same thing you're talking about where it's like my first year there i was like good lord how do you kill anything here i was like i i can't figure out like where because they can bed anywhere they can move anywhere there's food everywhere (laughs) you know i mean i was like you know it was my first experience like you you explained it to a t i was like but it just it, it intrigued me because it was a challenging way to hunt and it was the idea that you said at the beginning which was you had to learn to think like the like you had to learn to think like the animal and view things like the deer right and that's the part that intrigued me and so what i started picking up over the past, you know, two years was that there are specific deer that we've had on camera at different times of the year. And they're showing up to these places year over year within like a two to three day window max. Right. And, and that's, that, that'll be my opportunity. And so I've kind of learned how to started to learn how to hunt it in that scenario. And that is on single deer. My question is in the big woods setting, do you feel like when you find a particular pattern of a deer that he likes, say there's you know, in, in all those thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres, say there's, you know, an acorn, you know, an oak flat, right. That is in this one area that has really good transition cover and all the things you would think a mature buck would look for. Have you seen where not only is that single deer that maybe you are familiar with is using that around that same time frame? Are you also seeing that like deer of the similar caliber or similar maturity continue to use that place in addition to that one deer that you know of? Um, that's kind of a hard question to answer. I'm going to try to do my best to, to put words into that. Um, of course, um, really good edge trails along a swamp, um, are going to get used by multiple deer. That's why there's a trail there. Mm -hmm. Um, certain bedding areas are going to get used because they're strategically the best bedding area in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, food sources, again, are, are the best food source in the area. So multiple deer are going to hit them. Um, so the answer to your question is kind of yes, but then I'm going to also turn around and I'm going to say absolutely no, <laughs> because what I see is every big buck. Now I'm not talking about smaller, younger deer or does or whatever, but every big buck 
develops his own patterns, his own system. And when he's gone, you'll know it if you're in touch with that woods because his system will dry up. He won't show up in that area anymore. That trail won't have rubs on it like it used to have. That bedding area, that one spot that he, you know, and when I say bedding area, that one little hump in the Tamarack Swamp that he used to lay on won't be bedded anymore. Right. Uh, and so it's, it's, they are so, um, individual, right? It's crazy how individual, but they will all go and eat the right food sources when they're in, right. you know, they'll all use the same edge trails, uh, those kind of things. But as far as the individual pattern on each buck, you can't expect another buck to replace that buck and then use his pattern. Right. It's, it's just not going to happen. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I, and I think, I think sometimes we see, you know, maybe in like, we'll just say farm country. Cause I know you mentioned it at the beginning, you know, where you might see a, uh, I guess I would, I'll put it this way. It's not uncommon if you have a mature deer that gets killed, you know, on a farm or whatever that is using the best bedding, right. That the next year, the next best mature deer takes his place. I think that that happens in farm country settings because you're dealing with like, you're dealing with chunked up parcels with a fair amount of pressure around that only provides so many places that a, that a mature buck is willing to bet in. Right. And I don't want to put words in your mouth. So I'm asking for confirmation here. It feels like in the big woods that that area will dry up because it is so vast that there are ample opportunities for mature bucks to find what they're looking for. And because of the vastness of, of the area, they just aren't experiencing the pressure that is forcing them to make a betting choice out of pressure versus, versus preference. Does that sound fair? Yeah. Well, they, like I said, they've got their own, they, they each have their own individual, uh, um, personality and, and, and that shows through in the, the choices that they make. And, and, um, which brings up another point with these big woods deer. If you're not a mobile hunter, mm. you're not going to, you're not going to win the game year after year. You can't win the game after, year after year, because again, you, you take, you take that big buck out of that area that you're hunting, that square mile that you're hunting. There may not be a replacement in there. And now, now you love that area and you had success there. And in your brain, you're, you're remembering <laughs> that deal that you made. So you keep going back to that stand and I see guys do this for 10 years. Oh yeah, for sure. I go back one year and I don't see that buck there anymore. I move on. I mean, I'm so, I'm like a wolf. I, I'm, I cover ground and I, and I find where these deer are. Um, and if they're not there the next year, I'll, I'll determine that in a hurry, especially if there's snow on the ground, I'll, I'll go to their favorite crossings and I'll, and I'll go there two or three days in a row. And if they haven't come across in two or three days in all the crossings that I know that they use, I know they're dead, right? You know, and, and I move on. I, I there's no sense of me, um, you know, they're just not going to be there anymore. And and they hold that pattern so true that if he's still alive, he's going to be coming across. I um, if you come to my tracking school, I've got an example. I show mappage and everything of it. It's a really good example of this. Um, one deer would cross a road in one spot. I never saw another deer track besides that deer's track, and he was a brute. Now, he was a monster, and I was after him for three years. And every time he crossed that road in that one spot, I could have dropped a hula hoop on the ground a half a mile away, and I know that he was his track would have been in that hula hoop. Hmm. That's how tight of a pattern he was running, 
And, and when I say I dropped that hula hoop, there was a crick crossing that he absolutely used every time he came through there. Every time he crossed the road there, he had a pattern that he snaked along the edge of the swamp, followed this edge all the way, went way down the crick. And when he found that crossing, he would turn and he'd go right across that crossing every time I took him. So um, that's how patternable they are. That's just one example of, of hundreds like that. Um, they hold those patterns. And, and again, um, it's hard to put words on this stuff um, and explain it for people to understand. They're not on a track. They're not like on a trolley system where they, where they can't veer off. Right. right. You know, this, this buck will go, you have to think that's another thing too. Um, so much to try to cover. Yeah. Um, you have to think really huge in the big woods. You can't think 40 acre plots. You can't think this little Oak Ridge or this little swamp. Um, that's such a small part of their daily life or whatever, especially during the rut that it, it just doesn't work. You have to think really big. You have to think of a doe group that's a mile and a half away. And you have to think about how he's going to go from this doe group to that group a mile and a half away. What's the best way for him to get there? Right. I mean, that's, you have to start thinking mile and a half. You have to start thinking four miles. Um, I, I've chased deer up to six miles wow. without them ever even stopping to take a poop or, or to eat or lay down. Wow. Yeah. And, and, you know, so you have to think really big. You have to think really, you know, really large terms in, as far as these deer, you know, how they use this land. Now, I'm talking rut. When it's not rut, um, they tighten their home core down quite a bit. Right. Um, but during the rut, you have to think really big puzzle. You have to, you know, people send me maps and they ask me, hey, what do you think of my hunting area? And I, I send them back and I say, I, I don't think much of it at all because I can't see two miles away. Right. I, you have to give me <laughs> GPS coordinates right. so that I can look what's two miles away. You know, um, a lot of times um, it, it's common sense, connect the dots between the, the clear cuts. Right. Um, you know, that's where they always end up. You would believe sometimes I get on these tracks and I go for miles and miles and miles. And all of a sudden I pop out on a clear cut and I think, holy shit, how far did I go? This, this, this clear cut is miles and miles and miles away by road, it might be 15 miles away, but straight through the woods, it was only four miles. Right. You yeah. know, so I, I, they, that's how you have to think about this. Right. I was just going to say, I think you made two really good points or one really good point, And then something that I've experienced, which was, you know, having to think big. I think that was the biggest kind of learning curve for me and still is as I'm, you know, adapting to that bigger woods, um, setting to hunt in is just the, 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 the size of it. Right. And you're, you're hundred percent right. Where it's like my buddy, Chad and I, we would talk about it, you know, and just about their long lines of movement. Right. Because you're used to, if you're hunting, you know, even if you're hunting public land and you're hunting parcels that are maybe 1500 acres or 3000 acres, I mean, that still isn't, that still isn't huge. Cause you can look at it and go, all right, well, this is where they won't be spending time based on hunting pressure right? This, this is the area. I mean, you can quickly take 3000 acres and get it down to 500 where it's like, that's really where the deer are probably going to be. Right. And it, and then that's kind of easier to wrap your brain around when you're in some of these places, like the, you know, the place I'll, I'll be hunting again this year, you know, it's probably not the same size of what you have in the, in the North woods, but it's close to 70,000 acres, which is pretty big. And like, and just thinking about, and it's not ag country, like there's no farms around. It's all just big, mountains and nasty clear cuts and deep ravines, you know, and, and 
having to think about how a deer is going to move from place to place and how far away those things are, like the way we typically hunt, I think, just doesn't condition you to think that that broadly. You know, and so I think that's a really good point because that deer, where you might say, oh, he's he might be bedded over here. It's like, well, he he may be going the opposite direction when he gets up from bed to go check a doe bedding area that could be two miles away. So he's never going to make it to where you're at until tomorrow morning or whatever the case is. You know what I mean? Or he might not get there for two days. Um, oh, just, right. He might, he might be gone. Uh, he might be gone on one of his rut. I call them rut cycles or circuits. Uh, he might be on one of those. He might find a doe and eat. He might hook up with her for two days. Um, he, and, and if you're hunting his home core, he might not be back there for two or three days and he might find a doe and heat on the way back and never get back for four days. Right. Yeah. You know, um, and that's another mistake I see big woods hunters make. Um, actually everybody, a lot of these guys, um, they use the term rut, rutification or whatever. They take their vacation uh, mm-hmm. during the rut. Um, take that center of the peak of the rut right out of your rut vacation and throw it in the garbage. Don't even bother to go in the woods during the peak of the rut. Don't even bother. You, you Either you got to hit them before the does get in the heat or you got to hit them after most of the does have been bred because what's going to happen in the middle is all the big mature bucks are going to be locked up on does. And usually they find them at night and then they hang with those does until they bred them for a couple of days and then they move on and most of the time, they're already settled in with the next doe during the peak of the rut before mm-hmm. the light of day again. And and so, you, are you going to get a buck to move during the light of day sometimes? Yes, you do. You will. Um, but honestly, it's like winning the lottery. Mm-hmm. Um, most of you hear this. How many times have you heard the statement that uh, all the little bucks are circling, all the little uh, the, the big ones aren't moving yet? I've heard that again. The big oh, yeah. ones aren't moving yet. Both. They're not. They are moving but they're moving at night and they're locking up with those. Yep. And that's why you're not seeing a move. Now, if you are that one guy in a million, that's lucky enough to be right where there's a doe in heat. He might have, he might, or she might be dragging around three really nice bucks. And then you'll have the hunt that you'll never forget the rest of your life. <laughs> it might be the last hunt you ever have like that your whole life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think people you know, over overstate or overplay like, you know, rut, rut activity because, you know, I think for me, I personally have only ever experienced that kind of like crazy rut activity, you know, where it was like what you're saying, where it's like I had a day where it's like I just saw buck after buck after buck. And I just happened to be, well, not happened to be, I knew where I was at, but I was set up in between two doe bedding areas that basically was connected by a, by a scrape line. And they would travel this, this, uh, um, basically this saddle between these two ridges all day back and forth. You know, it was a hot morning spot. It was a great mid day spot by the evening it started kind of it would it would cool down and i had three days of that one year and it was like nothing i'd ever seen before and that spot all is typically a decent place um but i've never seen it like that again yeah well you know and i've i've had it too i mean i uh my most memorable rut hunt was uh one where i pushed the barrel out into the chest of the buck squeezed the trigger and drove out of the way before he ran me over (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that was, I, I think that was the fourth buck through. Wow. Yeah. The other ones all passed within four or five feet. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, and you get, you get it. Um, that happens sometimes, you know, but, but like I said, if you're banking on that happening, that's really low odds. And, right. uh, 
So I would rather be out there now, you know, back it up to what you were talking about. You're throwing cameras out in your areas and you're starting to learn some pattern movements and so forth. Um, rub, rub lines tell you historical patterns. Those are really good to go by. Um, you know, get on those um, early. Uh, where I used to go, uh, or I still go actually up in, in northern Wisconsin, um, I used to be able to get up there earlier and bow hunt. Uh, now in my business, I don't have time to get up there uh, and do that anymore. But I noticed the pattern year after year. Every year, uh, the 26th or 27th of October, all the scrapes opened up. Mm-hmm. Every year uh, to the day, 26th, 27th. And, and so if you would ask me, when was my best chance of shooting a trophy buck up there? I would say the 26th or 27th. I would say plan to be up there the 24th, 25th, and then start sitting all day long on these rub lines. So then, let me ask you a question about rubs, because that was actually one of the things I wanted to get to. Um, and then I do want to circle back to tracking, because that's something I definitely want to hear hear more about. But, you know, are there, are there, you know, I guess let me ask this way. Have you found rub, you know, any specific kind of, patterns or anything that you found to be, you know, a, a tip or a tip off in, when, when it comes to rubs, as specifically as it relates to rubs that are around, you know, beds or around bedding in general, is there anything to that? Like, you know, clusters of rubs, you see that, do you, do you find them more around primary bedding? Like, just give me your take on rubs and, and how it relates to bedding. Um, rubs are really, uh, really interesting thing because most of the time, uh, guys are hunting the rubs all wrong and and for the most part um hunting a rub is almost stupid (laughs) um what what i see by tracking these deer is a lot of these rubs are made uh frustration aggression uh just testosterone uh most of the time it's because they come across another buck uh that had crossed right where they are and they get they get excited they'll they'll Every time they cross another buck's track, they'll pee. Mm-hmm. Um, if, and if they get worked up a little bit, they'll they'll paw the ground. And you see a lot of these little ba- uh, basketball-sized scrapes opening up. A lot of times those are one-time deals made in those situations. Um, and rubs are the same. They'll get worked up if there was another buck in their area, and they'll rub something up. I see a lot of these bigger ones along these transition lines along, like, where the does are feeding, um, you know, really good, heavily used transition lines, uh, where does maybe are bedding, uh, you know, between the hardwoods and the swamps or something, you see these big rubs and the guys get excited and they want to throw up a stand and they want to hunt that. The only problem is, is the buck that made that rub there, that really big monster, you know, maybe four or five, six inch tree or whatever, maybe an eight inch tree. He, he probably made that, um, in the middle of the night and he was probably three miles from his core area. Right. And, and, and know that, that rub makes you, you take a picture of it like I do when you share them on the internet, when you see <laughs> right. one of those, you know, and everything, it's really cool and everything, but it's the last place I want to hunt. I mean, it's just not a good, it's not a high percentage spot. Mm-hmm. Um, when you see clusters of rubs near a bed, mm-hmm. bingo. I mean, that's a very good place to hunt. Um, if you see clusters of rubs or a lot of rubs near, uh, where there's doe bedding. Um, that's telling you that those bucks are coming through and they're, they're getting a little excited and they're rubbing up, you know, right near that doe bedding. Cause they smell those does. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, that could be a really hot spot during the rut because you know that that's where he comes through there. That's where he's, he's traveling. One thing rubs do tell you is they tell you that they can tell you that there's a big buck in the area. Mm-hmm. They can kind of tell you how many, maybe how many bucks are. I think the more competition, the more rut activity you see, including rubs. Mm-hmm. And then you can start to look at rubs as, um, rubs are like a fingerprint. Um, that one particular buck, he's got a, he's got a big spur on his, on his base. And every time he rubs a tree, he rips the tree up real hard. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and he always wants to go after white pines and he always rubs them that are about three inches in diameter. And his, the height on his rubs are almost always the same. His rub is like a fingerprint. You can walk a mile away and find another tree and you can say, Hey, I know that buck. Right. You know, and in the next rub you see, um, is on a maple tree and it's, and he's always hitting maple trees and it's smooth as butter. There's no scarring anywhere he's rubbing the bark right off, but it's smooth as butter because he doesn't have any burrs on his bases or nothing. He's not getting his tines and, you know, his brow tines involved when he's rubbing. Um, he's hooking in that crotch probably between his, his brow tine and his, you know, and his main beam and, and he's rubbing smooth. And then and you remember that. Now you get a quarter mile away along some edge and you see that same rub. And now, you know, that same buck, that's part of his travel pattern. Right. And so rubs are a really good indication of what's around and, and in, and in where their travel patterns are. Right. You know, and if you're going to be more than just a tracker and you're going to start bow hunting in an area and rifle hunting in an area, and you're trying to learn individual buck patterns, those are the things you want to start noting on your GPS and, and, um, uh, you know, uh, Onyx, um, I love their, set up because you can take pictures as a waypoint and oh, yeah. I, I'm doing that a lot now. I, I take pictures of rubs. I take pictures of a lot of things. Um, if I'm going to pick out a tree that I want to hunt out, I take a picture of that tree because that way, when I go back, I can remember what tree it was that I wanted to hunt out of. I don't have to really think about it a lot again, right. but, um, getting back to the rubs, if I take a picture of that rub and then I'm, I'm still scouting that area and I get three quarters of a mile away and I see another tree rubbed up, I can take that I can open up my onyx and look at that picture of that rub. And I, and usually you can tell, you can usually say, Oh yeah, that is that buck or no, no, that one looks different. Right. I think that's really handy, especially in the big woods where it's like, you know, you have, you know, I'm going to assume like the deer density is probably lower, at least in the big woods section that I hunt, like the deer density is pretty, pretty low or deer per square mile. Um, and so you could probably say with relative confidence too, it's like, unless the rub is completely like different, just I'm judging like from a picture, right? Like you can probably say with pretty good confidence, that's the same deer as long as it has, has very, very similar characteristics, right? When you start studying them, you're going to start seeing that more, more and more. You're going to start to really say, yeah, I'm, I'm almost certain that this buck is the same buck. You know I mean? You start to really study. I'm really take a close look at them. You know, that's things that, um, that I never did either in the past. And I've gotten very good at doing that, you know, like deer tracks. I looked at tracks all my life. And when I started tracking deer for the first time in my life, I really looked at a deer track, really right. studied a deer track, you know, and now, now I'm doing that with rubs. I, I look at rubs and I really study the rub. What um, a, Cause I want to be able to know, you know, if that's the same deer that's, you know, in this area. Right. And I was watching one of your videos um, there a week, week or two ago or whatever it was. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think you were talking about being able to tell the maturity of a deer that made them. Can you talk a little bit about how you kind of evaluate them to tell you, you know, what maturity level that deer might've been that, that made that rub? Um, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot, a lot has to do with the bigger, the buck, the bigger, the, 
the bigger the tree they'll pick on. Not always the case, but that's a really good uh, way of looking at it. And uh, and I've noticed this, um, but I'm going to give credit to Dan Infault on this one because after he mentioned it, uh, I started looking at it a little bit closer, and I and I and I agree with him. Um, the higher the rub is, mm-hmm. the older, the bigger the buck. Right. I, I don't I don't know why they do that. I think it's because they're just bigger and stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems to be. I think he's right with that. I think he's one hundred percent correct. I think the higher up the average of the rub is. Um, but you know, you'll see this too. You know, I, I talked about how smooth or how scarred it is, but you'll get some bucks too that their rub will only be like maybe 13 inches, 15 inches wide. And then you'll get another buck that he'll want to scar that tree up and down for two feet. You know what I mean? So that even the length of the rub up and down. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing, another thing too, that I learned from tracking, I'm sitting here talking to you about this and I've got a 140 class eight pointer that I tracked right on the wall right next to me here. Nice. Um, I've got pictures of the, the rubs he made before I killed them. It was whippy brush, uh, less than a half inch in diameter. Mm-hmm. And he worked it all up and it was all, you know, busted up and rubbed up and everything. So, um, I would say a, a big rub can tell you that there's most likely a big deer, but don't discount the little rubs as being little. They could be, but they might not be. I've seen a lot of big bucks tear up a lot of little stuff. So, um, that would be my, I guess if I had to say, I would say if it's really big, there's a really good chance it's a big buck. If it's small, you really don't know for sure. Right. I, I think it's funny you mentioned that because one of the spots this year that I was doing some scouting this, um, uh, this off season on a piece I'd never been to before, um, and came across this kind of primary scrape area that had a handful of rubs in it. And there was one kind of what you're talking about where it was like a smaller kind of bushy brushy kind of I don't even know what species it was tree thing. That's kind of what I refer to it. But it was like every stinking like trunk on that thing was rubbed and anything that was about as big around as my thumb, maybe just a little bit bigger was snapped off. And that yep. was probably, and, and I was just going to say, that was, that, was the, that was the spot that I was probably most excited about because I was like, man, that takes some strength to break something like that. The fact that everything was rubbed up and he was snapping stuff off that had some decent size to it. I was like, all right. I was like, I think that I have a, a place where there, there could be a decent deer. Right. Try it once. Go out in the woods. I was just, <laughs> that's why I wanted to interrupt you. Try to break that yourself. Right. Try to do that. And find out just how hard it is to break that green stuff off. That's, that's a half inch diameter. It's really hard. So they've got to be very powerful um, to break that off the way they do. So that tells you that's got to be a substantial deer. Um, and matter of fact, if it's twisting brush off, you know it's a tined buck because a, a spike can't wrap. Yep. Exactly. Well, the other you know, thing was like too. The other thing was so, too is this was on a on the top of a mountain, and there was a it was a weird. I call I refer to them as mountaintop swamps because I get up on top of this couple areas, and it gets all swampy where it gets kind of in, indented on the top, and where there was actually cattails up there, and there were cattails that were being drugged away from where the cattails were at, and you know obviously you know a spike can't get cattails wrapped around their antlers and move them fifty yards away. So that was kind of, those were the couple pieces that I put together in that spot where I was like, all right, I think we got, you know, my buddy Greg was with me and he's the one who pointed out the, the cattails or the reeds being drug away. Cause he hunts a lot of swamp and I don't, or I hunt swampy where I'm usually at. There's not as many reeds. Um, and that's something that he's always noticed was, you know, more mature deer with a, a better rack. will get that, we'll get that junk wrapped around their antlers and end up carrying it away. So if you're finding, 
you know, reeds and swamp grass, you know, 50 to a hundred yards away from where the reeds and swamp grass are good chance. That was a buck that got it wrapped in his tines and, and ended up dropping it there. Yeah. And one thing I want to mention too, as long as we were talking about rubs, um, there is one rub that I pay an awful lot of attention to. And when I find one, I'm really excited and there, it seems like it's getting harder and harder to find them anymore. Um, but a, a signpost rub, if you know what yeah, a signpost yeah. rub, if you can find one of those, those are worth hunting. Um, I know that, um, I was reading, um, Hal Blood, uh, the tracker from out, out East. Yeah. Um, he found a really good one and I know he pays a lot of attention to him and he put a client on and the client hunted it for a, a, about a week or so. I don't know, quite a few days and he didn't have a success and that client rotated through camp and the next client came in and he told the other client about that as well. And he says, you know, this is something that, you know, we, we might want to spend some time on or whatever. And the guy decided he wanted to hunt it. He shot the biggest buck that Hal has ever taken in the camp. It was like a 180 wow. class wow. off that signpost. And, and the reason that signposts are so good, there's a bunch of reasons. One is because there's a lot of different deer using it. So that you, when you're sitting on it, you're not hoping for one. You're hoping for, you know, maybe multiple different deer could come through, which puts your odds up. Mm-hmm. And signpost rubs are always going to be in a hub situation. It's always going to be um, where edges converge with other edges and kind of funnel deer movement to that spot. And that's why that signpost rub is there because so many deer are passing through that area. Mm-hmm. So that signpost rub tells you that that's a hub of activity. there, Right. So, and that, that would be, um, you know, your odds start going up when you start hunting that. So, you know, again, it, it's anything, everything in the big woods is low odds. So you're trying to go from, um, uh, from one in a million to, one in a hundred thousand, you know? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No. So, and, and, and the thing that's almost kind of, the only thing I don't like about tracking is now that I've tracked, I know just how crappy your odds really are. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's now, because now I know the truth. Now I know that if I'm out in the woods and I'm sitting, the chances of me scoring are so low that it, I, I, I almost can't force myself to sit anymore. Sure. All right, folks, we're back. Sorry about that. We had a little technical difficulty with my with my internet, but we got Todd back on the line here. So now, Todd, I want to transition now and start talking about tracking. And and one of the things that I, it's one of the things like I said at the top that I'm trying to get better at is reading is reading tracks. But I don't trust myself yet at this point to be able to know that I'm either looking at a buck track or a doe track. You know, unless like the size is just so obvious that it tells me. Can you talk to me a little bit about, about how you're deciphering between a doe track and a buck track? Like what are those things that you're looking for? Sure. First of all, I, you hit the key point. Um, I, I very seldom bothered, uh, don't bother with any track besides the one that's really, really big because then I absolutely know for certain that it's a, it's a good buck, um, that no doe will get that big. And then I also know, you know, if it is a buck, it's an awful big one. And, I know that when it gets messed up with other tracks, I can find it a lot easier. So there's a lot of uh, advantages with picking the biggest track in an area. Um, But other than that, if you're going to pick a track and you're going to take it, um, the main thing to do is a bunch of things. Uh, Let me kind of run them down for you. When I evaluate a track, 
I don't, I, I evaluate the smallest track in a set. I, I walk on, I'll walk, you know, sometimes a quarter mile before I'll decide to take that deer. And I'm looking at the smallest track. Cause when you, when a deer walks, they walk hind leg in front, you know, hind, hind hoof hits the front hoof hole. So you're actually seeing a double print every hmm. time unless they step off to the side. And so every deer is different. And a lot of deer have just a little stagger difference. And sometimes they always punch a little bit bigger hole because of that. Cause the other one doesn't perfectly line up and that's just the way their gait is or whatever. And so they make their own track look bigger. Um, so I look at a series of tracks to evaluate over a distance of time or a length of time and, 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 and see what get a better picture of what he really is. If you have that opportunity, if you got good snow conditions and stuff and you can do that um, because you're going to be putting a lot of effort into taking that track, it's going to be the rest of the day and you're going to come out of the woods absolutely exhausted and beat the hell. So um, you don't want to take anything, but what you really want to have, you really want to take a good track. So um, evaluate first, um, I always, I always kid me and, and liken it to getting married, really evaluate close before you make your decision. <laughs> so, so, cause you're going to be, you're going to be stuck with it for a while. A so I mean, make sure that you're happy with it. Make sure it's really what you want, you know, and, um, you'll save yourself a lot of wear and tear. I'll tell you that. Um, but then when you're looking at a track, uh, bucks walk a certain way. And when I say that, it's in the rut. Um, most of when there's snow on the ground in my area, it's always the rut. Um, I don't care if it's uh, halfway through December; it's still the rut. Mm-hmm. Bucks move over long distances. They don't meander around or goof around. They're on the move. Um, so when you're looking at the track, you got to read the entire track, not just footprints. Um, so you're looking for a big track. Um, and then you're looking for a big track that's cutting country. Okay. One that's not goofing around or milling around. Um, of course, a lone track, um, it could, it could be with a doe. So you got to make sure that you're evaluating that right too. That ain't a doe fawn, that it's a buck doe. Right. Um, and that can get a little tricky because sometimes these young does come or you know, um, fawn does can come in the heat and they have an awful tiny track and then it kind of fools you. Well, it's like a big doe with a fawn, but no, that's a buck chasing her. Right. Um, so, but evaluate the track over a distance of time and see if what this deer is doing it. And then if they stop and pee, the, the, the does pee different than the bucks. So that'll, that'll tell you right away. If they stop and pee, you should be able to tell the difference between if the doe squatting or a buck. All right. Can you talk um, about that a little bit? Like, what do you look for? What's the, what's the difference? Well, a buck, his, his penis is in, in the, like on his belly and the doe, she pees out the back. So, I mean, just look where the hoof prints are laying. Okay. Um, so it's, it's know, the, it's the, it's the urine patch in relationship to the hoof prints. Yeah. She'll, yeah. she'll bunch up her feet. Um, she'll bunch up her feet kind of together and then she'll pee out the back. Okay. Yep. So urine stain will be back behind the tracks. Um, Whereas a buck, a lot of times he'll even try to pee on his hocks or whatever, but his penis is forward of the hind legs. So mm-hmm. that, you know, look for that. Um, a buck will always pee when he crosses another buck track. So if you see a buck cross a buck track and then you see you dribble a pee there, you'll know it's a buck. A doe won't do that. Got it. Um, you know, uh, again, you know, a, a big track is, is one you want to take and you'll know for sure. 
Um, if he stops and rubs it uh, or makes a scrape, you know, it's a buck. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of different indications. If he beds down, look for the tarsal staining in the bed. Um, there'll always be there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a doe bed won't be like that. Buck bed bed will. And then, and then, um, as long as I mentioned that scoop, either get right down on your hands and knees and stick your face right down in there or scoop the snow up and smell it. And you'll smell that tarsal smell, which is horrible. And <laughs> you'll smell, you can tell how old that bed is by how strong that tarsal gland smells and the pee as well. When you come across his urine, you're tracking them, scoop it up in your hand, smell it. After a while, your nose will start telling you how old that track is. Is it eight hours? Is it four hours? Is it two hours? Believe it or not, your nose is good enough to be able to tell you that after a while, after you smell enough of it, you'll be able to smell urine and say, wow, that's really strong. Or wow, that's, that's getting old already. Right. So, um, those are all indications as to what you want to look for. I'll tell you the biggest indication I use people talk about stagger from left to right. Um, I've heard it talk that, that, uh, a linebacker or a lineman in football has got a really wide stance. So a big buck will have a wide stance as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've just not found that to be true. Maybe it is in other areas. There's a country, but the areas I've chased here and I've not found that to be true. Um, and stride length. I don't carry too much about the length of his stride either, because that changes with him getting tired or if he's fresh. And it also could be, um, that it could be a little bit smaller framed buck. I don't care if the buck is a smaller framed buck. If he's a four or five years old and he's carrying a, uh, you know, uh, a rack with, uh, 40 inches of mass and he's a solid eight pointer. I don't care if he's six inches shorter than the other deer, (laughs) (laughs) you know, there's, there's, so I don't care about the stride length. Um, uh, kind of trying to cover so much here at what? Yeah. Let, uh, me, let me ask you another quick question about, about the track because so, you know, totally makes sense, you know, looking for the size of the track, making sure, you know, it's in comparison, you know, you want to kind of look for this, the, the smallest track that's in the, the kind of group as well, because they'll, you know, they'll step into their front, their front hoof track and, and, and stuff like that. Like that all makes sense. You know, if I'm, I'm going to ask for like the dummy guide, for the guy, let's, let's say if, if you were writing the book of uh, uh, tracking for dummies, <laughs> for me <laughs> specifically, um, is there kind of a rule of thumb that you use, you know, for like the track size for like, just say like a guy like me who's going out in the woods and he's just starting to learn, you know, or starting to pay more attention to tracks and, you know, and say I find a track, you know, am I looking for, you know, something that's four fingers wide or three fingers wide is going to be a buck. And now this is all dependent on like the area that you live and how big the deer potentially are in your, in your area, you know, of the, of the country. But it's like, do you have a rule of thumb that you could say, Hey, if it's a four finger track, like you're probably in pretty good business that, it, that it's, that it's a buck and you probably want to investigate it a little further, taking into consideration that, you know, whether it's on soft ground in mud or whatever the case is. Yeah. Um, you got a lot there. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> that's all right. That's fine. Um, the first, the first thing um, you hit on it, and so uh, I got to answer your question with a question: um, How big of a buck track 
am I hunting northern Minnesota or am I hunting northern Wisconsin or am I hunting the UP or am I hunting up in uh, Ontario? Because every one of those areas has a different size track that I will take. Right. No, and exactly. so my answer to your question is, is you have to learn the deer in your area and what a big track is in your area. And then that's what you want to aim for. That's a- I, I, when, when I'm in Northern Minnesota, I see tracks that are scary, huge, hmm. and it's unbelievable. Um, if I waited for one of those in central in Northern Wisconsin or up in the UP, I would never track another deer. Right. Cause they just, they just don't have the feet. Matter of fact, it goes in this order. Nor, uh, Minnesota's got the biggest central or Northern Wisconsin's got second biggest. And you get up into UP for some reason, they got tiny feet. I don't know why. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I don't, I don't know why that is, but I've noticed that to be the case. And so it, it gets harder when you get into those areas, like in the UP, I've, and I, and that's just maybe the area of the UP that I hunt. Uh, there might be, I mean, UP is a pretty big area, so right. there may be areas where that isn't true. But I guess the, the, the answer to that question is, is you have to go out there and you have to put your time in and learn and look at hundreds, thousands of tracks and then determine what a big track is. Um, if you're questioning that, break a stick off and put it in your pocket or use a shell casing as a guide or you know, use some sort of measuring device. I hate to use the, the term two, three finger, four finger, because I've got tiny fingers and I know right. guys, I, I, I've got a ring here that I can pass almost past a half dollar through that I got from an estate one time. And so if I use three of his fingers, I would never find a track that right. big. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I, I, yeah, use something as a guide, you know, use a stick or use a, a I always use my 30 out six shell mm-hmm. to kind of give me an idea. That's a good, that's you a good, know, yeah. Something that has a frame of reference. That's consistent. Right. That's, that's right. Good, and that's and, and for that area, you know, look and see what's, what's available in that area, what you're seeing consistently for, you know, what's the biggest that that area can provide. And then, you know, and then what you're willing to, to go on the, the, the idea is the bigger the track you can take, the easier it is to stay with that track because it's going to get muddled up with other tracks. And it's so much easier if you can move quicker and stay with that track easier, you know, without doing a lot of looking. Right. Right. All right. One thing I wanted to cover too, we were talking about tracks and I, we didn't touch on this at all. And this is very, very important. So I want to interrupt you and mention this. Yeah. Do claws, do claws, do claws. That's my number one determination. When, when a buck, um, when a buck's do claws are laying as wide as the track, a non-running track now, when they're walking, if that dew claws are laying as wide as the track or even a bit wider, he's a good one. Yeah. Okay. He's a good one. That's, That's uh, by number one. And, and, and if you've got shorter, you know, if you've got really uh, shallow snow, um, I love to see a buck hitting dews when there's hardly any snow at all, like where they cross the road, you know, and it's already been pushed down by the cars or whatever. And, and he's still touching his dews when he's crossing that road. It's like, wow, that's nice. Cause they're laying way back then. And that tells me they got some weight. Right. So what about, what about, you know, if you're in an area, like say where I'm at in Pennsylvania and you know, like this year we didn't really get any snow like to, to hunt. I think I hunted one day where there was actually snow on the ground. Um, or scout for that matter. Um, 
like, how do you go about, you know, do you apply the same kind of approach and thinking, whether if you get like some soft ground and like maybe a little bit of mud, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. Do you apply the same thinking or does your kind of thinking change whenever you're looking at it? Not in snow. The track itself. Yeah. Um, it's very important to know the medium that it's in. And it's also important to know the consistency of the medium when he made the track, not when you're looking at it. Mm, um, I see guys that show uh, so many times. I see these pictures on the internet of these guys taking pictures of deer that cross fields that were muddy. And this track is sunk in there four inches and this track is wide and it's, and it's, uh, splayed out and, and this track looks monstrous, but, um, and then they're standing next to it and they're not sinking in at all. Well, I don't know how it is. The soil is where that, that track was made, but I, I live, I grew up in clay country, clay country. When the clay gets wet, that track will sink right in. Matter of fact, I used to grow cucumbers. I used to lose my boots in the mud. It was, it would get so bad. Two days later, it was like walking on pavement. Right. You know, so, so, being able to analyze those things are really critical. When you, when you have a splayed track, and that means when I'm saying splayed is the toes, the, the tips are really wide compared to the back. Mm-hmm. That's a splayed track. They, they splay like that when they're running or, or, you know, when they spread their toes out like that, that track will look so much more bigger than that deer really is. That track will lie. Right. That'll right. make them look so much bigger. And I see that a lot of times too. When your V, when your track is making a V, I got a little video. If you go to YouTube, I got a little video on that. I kind of, I, I showed some pictures and I kind of did a drawing on there really quick. as a couple minute tutorial only a, a, a track that's more block shaped, like a rectangle. If you draw a, a rectangle around the, the track itself and the dew claws, it'll make a rectangle. If it's more like an hourglass, if it's like a V shape, um, that toes are splayed. That's not a good track to use as an indication. That doesn't mean he's not a big buck. That means look at more of the tracks to make a better evaluation. Right. Yeah. I actually watched that video and it totally made sense. I was like, I just never thought of that before. And then once I watched it, I was like, uh, oh. I was like, there you go. I was like, easy way to kind of quickly tell what I'm looking at, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, and then the old adage about the big buck with the rounded toes or whatever, it, it depends on the medium they're living in. If they're in, in rocky, uh, hilly soil or whatever, you know, where their toes are, they're using their toes to climb a lot. Uh, and for traction, they're going to wear them down. It's like our fingernails, right? You know, you, you take somebody that's working in uh, cement or something all day, their fingernails are always wore down, but you take somebody that's uh, working in an office, they got long fingernails cause they don't wear them down. And that's all a hoof is, is a fingernail, right? You know, so um, if you get a buck in muddy country and I've looked at, I, when I see when I, when people have a buck hanging, I go over there. I don't run over there and look at the rack. I go over there and look at their feet. <laughs> you know, right. I want to yeah. see their feet. And I've seen a lot of four or five year olds, uh, like up in the or up in the Wisconsin area that I hunt because it's so swampy there. A lot of four or five, six year old bucks that have really sharp toes yet. Right. Now, that's a good point. I never thought. I never thought of that. Just based on like the area that they live in, what their track, and you know whether it would be rounded or not rounded, and what that might mean as far as like age size or sex you know right and yeah. you know and, and tracking the best way to learn is look at so many tracks that your eyes start crossing right i, I can't even tell you i, I have no idea i look at a hundred thousand tracks already i don't know 
You know, I've been doing this for about 12, 13 years or so now. Um, I do a lot of driving and looking for tracks. Um, and I have no idea how many tracks I've looked at in my life. You know, it's like scary the number I've looked at. And and, and you start to see subtle things in tracks. Um, I've made this comment before, and, and it's kind of funny. I, you know, we watch the old Westerns where the old Indian would be tracking, you know, and he would tell the cowboy, um, this, this white man weighed 180 pounds and he was carrying his rifle in his left hand and his, and his right knee was sore, you know, and, and, and you, and you laugh at that, you know, like you're laughing right now. It's like, Oh right. yeah, right. But when you look at enough tracks, honestly, God, you reach a point where you start to see that stuff. It, it's kind of weird. Right. No, um, I, I mean, I, I totally get it. It, it. it makes sense. I mean, you start to get really good at picking up the nuance of things. And as we know, with especially with hunting whitetails, like the devil's in the details and it's in the nuance. And the better you are at picking out those things, whether it's patterns or tracks or whatever it is, when you can start to pick out the smaller details. That's when you, at least for me, that's when you really start to see, you know, more encounters, better encounters and better kill opportunities you know but speaking of nuance in 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 that kind of detail like one of the videos that you had that i watched i thought was really interesting and i never thought of it and it was one of those things where once you said it it made all the sense in the world and i was like i can't believe i've never thought of this before but related to a track but you know you were talking about the importance of some of the things that present around the track outside of the track you know that are critical in helping you decipher, you know, what the track is telling you. Like, you know, um, for example, like whether it goes around or through terrain, whether it goes underneath something or around it, like, can you talk a little bit about some of those subtleties that are out around the track that help you kind of de- decipher, you know, what the track ultimately is telling you the, the caliber of deer, the, the, you know, male, female, et cetera. Sure. Um, the one thing, the biggest thing that I'll focus on, uh, is when you find a really good buck, when you find a big old buck, um, one that's probably minimum of five years old, but probably older than that yet, six, seven years old, um, they all have that one same characteristic. After you follow them for a little while, you just know it's a really, really big one because he doesn't waste any energy at all. If you look at it from an energy consumption standpoint with moving through the woods, some of them won't even jump over uh, a fallen tree that's only two feet off the ground. They just, they walk around it. They, um, they, they avoid jumping at all. They will if they have to, but they, they avoid jumping. Um, they also are a master of knowing the terrain that they've been through. Uh, they've been through there so much that they already know the obstacles that they might come into. So they avoid them before they even get to them. Hmm. And, um, and that'll tell you that a deer has been through that area a long time. Um, a really good case in point, I was following one down a trail, a quad trail, mm-hmm. um, which believe it or not, once it gets dark, these big bucks will walk right down human trails, quad trails, roads, because it's the easiest traveling and they know they're safe at night. So they'll go on the easiest path. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I'm walking along following him and all of a sudden he cut into the woods and I'm thinking, why did he go off the road here? He's, you know, I could still had a quarter mile of trail to walk on nice. Why would he leave this nice trail to go? Well, so I get up there just a little ways further and I realize there's a puddle there and the way the water was formulated and everything, it was 
the only way around it without having to go through that water would have been to dip off on the side a ways back and he could have stayed dry by dipping off a ways back like he did. <laughs> so that tells you that buck has been through there so many times already that he knew about the water before he got to it. And he knew which way to go to get around it. <laughs> he, he knew the easiest path through that area. So um, when you start following a really good buck, you'll see that. You'll see that um, another thing you can um, ascertain is how big of a rack they got. Um, it might be a really, really big track, but he might be a small buck yet. And in the, in the, in the Northwoods, a three-year-old really doesn't have much for a rack yet. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but he'll come to a tree and there'll, there'll be two trees on the path and there'll be 18 inches wide and, and he'll walk right in between it. And it's like, okay, well, he probably don't have much of a rack then. Right. But if he's a good one, he'll walk around. Right. The one example that you gave that really made a lot of sense to me was like an overhanging branch that should have been caught in that in a buck's tines if it had decent headgear and should have knocked the snow off and it never did. And that to me was yep. like a really like an aha moment it was like looking for those little disturbances that can help kind of give you more intel than just what you're just the track itself. Well, a lot of times if you have the, when you have the right snow conditions and you don't always have the right snow conditions, but when you have the right snow conditions where the snow is hanging on the branches pretty good, but will still fall off, you can, you'll know how wide he is. You'll know how high his tines are. You'll know everything about that buck before you even shoot him because you'll see the disturbances, how much snow he knocks off of what limbs when he went through there. You know, you can picture in your mind how wide that rack was when he went through there that you know, well, well, look at that. That snow wasn't even disturbed up there, you know, so he couldn't have been, you know, he couldn't have been really big. Right. Um, and, and sometimes if, if rack, if rack size is the most important consideration for you, you might pull off of one of those because of that. You might say, well, you know, I just don't want to waste my time on this one because he is, he looks like a pretty good, you know, big body deer and everything, but he just doesn't seem to have the rack I'm looking for. So I'm going to let this one go. Right. Now, do you, you know, in terms of like how they're moving straight line, side to side, whatever, whatever the case is, you know, do you find that they, do they change anything about how, about how they move or do their tracks become a little bit different or the spacing or anything become different as they get closer to bedding? I guess I'm asking like from a track perspective, do they act different as they get closer to bedding versus when they're not around their bedding? I'm, I, I'll tell you what, I've tried to guess a million times that they're going to go down and then I would go into creep mode and I, and I would just waste an awful lot of time. Um, <laughs> sometimes they'll start meandering for reasons that I don't know. I don't understand. Um, sometimes they, they'll break off and they go into heavier cover and I'll start really going to creep mode and wait, you know, thinking I I'm right on them. I'm going to jump them here. Um, there's really, you know, uh, other trackers out east have talked in the in the mountainous countries. They talk about them going uphill and then they'll feed and then they'll bed. And then maybe their patterns are more you know strict that way. Maybe they do that a lot. I'm more of a flatlander, so um, I don't. I, I I quit guessing now because he's probably um, four miles ahead of me yet. I I can't I can't slow down because if I slow down, I'm never going to catch him. Right. And I've been wrong many more times than I'm ever right. So, um, uh, one indication that he's going to lay down, there's, there's one, if he stops and really feeds up, which is very rare, if he stops and really starts pawing the ground hard and really feeding and really, really ripping up an area feeding, 
he's going to go down. Mm-hmm. He, but but boy, good luck finding that. You know, I mean, that's <laughs> rare. One out of a hundred that where he'll really. I don't know how these deer survive. They don't eat. They never eat during the rut. Honest to God, you follow these deer for miles and miles and miles, and they stop and they eat a little old man's beard. They'll eat. They'll chew on a mushroom on the side of a tree. They'll paw on the ground and eat a little bit of fern or something, but not enough. You know, for uh, it would be like you and me going a whole day and eating a handful of peanuts. Right. <laughs> you know, and they do, and they do this all day long, every day, every day, every day. You know, and it's like I don't know how they survive. Well, I know how they survive. They they lose a huge amount of their body weight. Yeah. You know, yeah. they, they, in, in some cases literally run themselves to death. Yeah. I mean, it's something like they'll lose maybe, don't quote me on the percentage, but I think if I'm not mistaken, it's something like 30% roughly of their body weight of their body mass they'll lose. They can, they can lose that. And, and they also, I, I don't know cause I'm not a biologist, but I've heard if they lose a certain percentage, they won't even make the winner. Yeah. Well, um, I, I don't disagree and, with that. And I, I imagine it's probably even more so whenever you get further up, you know, in the, in the neck of the woods where you live. That, that eight pointer I was telling you about that's mowing on the wall right next to me. And now it's a one forty class. I did. I, and it was one of the very few deer that I didn't get a chance to get on a scale. His track told me he was light, but his track was big, mm-hmm. but he wasn't making heavy tracks. He was making big tracks, but not heavy tracks. And, and, I read that into there, but I kind of discounted it until I shot the deer, walked up to him. I rubbed my hand down his back. He was hollow. Yep. I, I, this deer was maybe, and I, can, I, I don't know for sure because I never got him on a scale. My guess is he went 160 to 165. That's all he weighed. Wow. And I know he had the frame of a 200-pound deer. Right. Yeah. You know, and this was late, late rut. It was December 11th when I shot that deer. So it was getting awful late and he was already actually slowing down from the rut and he was actually doing a lot more feeding. Right. Um, so he was slowing down and he was trying to put some of that body weight back on, but man, you know, and when you look at the pictures of him, he still looks like a really big deer because frame wise, he was a really big deer. But when you put your hands on him and you can see just how much muscle mass he lost, um, it was amazing. I, and I thought to myself, I'm not sure that he would have actually made it, you know? Right. Yeah. He what would have if, soul run down. So I want to, I want to circle back to like when we were, I, I asked you just a little bit about when you don't have snow, but what's your approach whenever, when you're tracking on bare ground? I mean, cause that's gotta be kind of a game changer, you know, going from snow to tracking on bare ground. I'm sure you're having to look for a lot of different types of things whenever it comes to bare ground tracking. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, I don't. No. <laughs> let me, I mean, let me put it to you this way. I, um, I know that during the rut, they're probably going to go four, five, six, seven miles. Who knows? Maybe twelve miles. I can't keep with them that long on bare ground. And if I tried, and there's times when you get into some leaves that are turning up, and you can follow them for distances, um, but you can't go fast enough, right, to ever catch them. There's no way in a day's time. If you would, if you would get really lucky and he would happen to be very close to you, you know, you can, you can follow if you track enough, you can see where they're disturbing the ground, especially in softer areas, um, or good leaves. If they get turned over a little bit, you know, they're a heavy animal. They will disturb those leaves enough. Um, and you can see fresh disturbed leaves, but quite honestly, um, it's extremely, extremely low percentage. I would more or less at in those kind of situations, I'd go back to historical places where I know that a big buck uses those areas and either still hunt or call or just take up a, a stand somewhere. Um, 
because your percentages are probably better. I, I just, you, you know, I'm not saying that you can't track on bare ground or that you couldn't catch one, but luck would have to be in your favor. You would have to pick the track at the right time and have him only like a half a mile away or something. And then maybe you would, you know, you'd be able to catch up with them. Right. Right. No, that totally, uh, that totally makes sense. I mean, it, I, you're really kind of fighting with one hand tied behind your back at that point. Right. Well, you know, it, I, I'm, you know, here's another thing too. I've heard this a lot and I, and I'm never going to call anybody a liar or, or doubt them or anything, but, and I'm not an athlete and I'm, I'm 57 years old, so I'm not young. Um, but I can move through the woods. Mm-hmm. But what I found is, is when you hear somebody going much further than the distances I go, um, I wonder about it because it would take absolute pristine, perfect conditions where there's like one deer only in that whole country and you have three inches of perfect snow and you can jog along behind that track. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't, I can't go fast enough, even in really good conditions to get more, much more than six miles on in a day. Right. Because they always run into other tracks and then they start circling around and, and milling around there looking to see if that doe is in heat or they'll, you know, they always like to go and check, if there was a doe bedded, they'll always go to the bed and smell it. Oh, every time, you know, they'll, they'll cut off and they'll go and they'll smell that bed and they, then they mix up with the doe tracks and you got to figure it out. And there might've been a doe and two fawns and they made a bunch of tracks because they were feeding and you got to figure out which one is his. You have to make a couple big circles in the area, find out where he came out of there. And then you're on your way again. Well, you know, I, I you just, you can only cover so much ground at so much speed. And according to my GPS, a good fast track for me is a little bit over a mile and a half an hour. Right. You know, um, and when you factor in, you have to have time to get back. I don't, I don't walk out in the dark whenever I possibly can avoid doing that. I usually try to cut out giving myself enough time to get out during the light of day. I don't want to poke my eyes out and I don't want to sleep in the woods at night. Right. Um, you know, and, and I'm usually an awful long way from the, the vehicle. And so I, you know, I'll pull off, maybe two or three o'clock in the afternoon. There's times when I push that issue hard. Mm-hmm. Um, if I check my GPS and I know I'm, I'm quarter mile from a road, I'll push it right till dark. Then I can just skip to the road and I can walk out, you know? Right. Um, but, um, and then you got to factor in, I got to find a track in the morning. You know, I might not get on that track until 10 o'clock, you know? So how much time do I really have to take that track? You know? So it's hard to, it's hard to, put any much more miles and on and you can't only go so fast right um you know so when i hear people you know track the deer 12 miles i'm not going to say they didn't right i'm just going to say wow you know that's incredible if they did right. you know they're you know it must have had pristine perfect you know conditions to do that you know and and um i know i i, I won't even go 12 miles anymore not at my age I, I ain't got that in the tank anymore not not in the woods you know maybe right. on a flat i could do, but not in the woods Right. You know, if, yeah. I, if I chase 12, I still got to get out. Yeah. 12 miles is a fur piece, man. You know, it's, uh, it's nothing to, nothing to sneeze at. You know, I think the most I ever did in a day in the timber. Now this was out West hunting, uh, hunting elk I did 15 miles in one day. Wow. That, that's incredible. And that was, and that was moving like that was, it was a four mile hike in just to get into where we wanted to be to then hike to where we wanted to, where we wanted to hunt. Um, and so that was, that was a rough, that was a rough day. Um, but that was the most I'd ever done. Like that trip, that was every other day outside of that, we were doing about, 
about nine. And some of that is like you're maybe walking like a an access road for a little ways or and, and in the morning when you're trying to get to where you're going to glass, I mean, you're just, you're not looking at anything. It's dark. You're just moving as fast as you can move, you know, to get to your spot or whatever. And so, right. You know, you right. Might, and you're not trying to follow the track or not. You're just putting on miles. No, you're just putting on miles. You know what I mean? And then, yeah. and then, you know, so you might do four or five pretty quick, you know, and then you, the next five or six might be pretty slow and you know, you know what I mean? And then you might have to come back four miles and those miles are fast too. You know what I mean? So, right. It's a, uh, it's a little bit different, but man, I want to be sensitive to your time. Um, and let you get on with your evening here. I appreciate you, uh, coming on and talking tracks with me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. We'll have to have you back on again. Uh, maybe this, uh, maybe this fall, see how things are going with you. I'll certainly hit you up if I have any tracking questions, but before I let you go, if you wouldn't mind, let folks out there listening know where they can maybe find out more about you, learn about you, you know, find your videos and, and stuff like that. Sure. Uh, I'm on YouTube and uh, just type in Misty River Trackers and you'll find me. I, I try to put everything I do over there, mm-hmm. um, even like live feeds and stuff that I do on Facebook. Um, I During season, I try to do a lot of little tutorials if I have reception and I'll actually go live and do a, maybe a five-minute tutorial. And I try to get all that stuff over on YouTube, um, kind of bring it all over there under Misty River Trackers so you can find me there. Um, I have a web page as well. I got uh, www.mysteryrivertrackers.com. That's kind of set up more uh, for people to get to see me and to kind of bring some of the sources together as well. And there's going to be a store on there. It's set up right now, but right now I'm not worried about trying to make money. I'm worried about just trying to get the information out there to people and whatever, and eventually I'll get t-shirts and hats and that's where I want people to, I do a tracking school as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll use that as my platform for, you know, for the pay over there. But, uh, but there's not going to be a lot of activity at that site. Um, the big place to find me and to see where the daily activity is going to be, is going to be on Facebook. And you got to go to the Facebook group called Misty River Trackers Base Camp. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's where you're going to find the daily activity or whatever. A lot of the things I do, um, uh, when I'm out in the boat and when I got some content to share, when I have something funny to say or, or whatever the case, you know, in the off season, it's going to slow down quite a bit. Uh, my, my business, my real business takes precedence. And, uh, so things are going to slow down quite a bit. I've been doing a lot of tracking. I've been trying to get a lot of tracking videos out there too, is excuse me. Uh, scouting i've been doing a lot of scouting and i've been trying to do a lot of scouting videos and getting those out there um if if uh if you're uh, let's say intermediate or beginner or whatever you probably can get a lot from those um scouting videos i got basically got a camera on my shoulder and i just go along and and talk it through what i'm seeing and whatever awesome well everyone out there listening be sure to give Todd a follow, check out his Facebook page, check out his YouTube channel. Todd, thanks for coming on, buddy. I appreciate you. No problem. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast in hell. While you're at it, head over to YouTube and subscribe to the channel there as well. I'd be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Gumleaf USA Boots. And until next time, we'll see y'all.
All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.